Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse tinctures of science, art and culture into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature National Science Week, particle physics and the Global Consciousness Project. But first up, here's the news with Marianne Carruthers. In today's news, not just a census for people, but for the green sludge in the sea, they don't need to miss out, and Paleolithic cave art, not just for pagan rituals. But first up, scientists have discovered a 300-mile-wide crater under the Antarctic ice. This may be evidence that an object 30 miles wide came crashing down and caused a mass extinction 250 million years ago. In comparison, it's thought boulder only a fifth of that size was needed to wipe out the dinosaurs. Moving right along, if you're a diligent little Aussie, you would have completed and sent off your census 2006 form by now. But you might not know that it's not just us, as some marine scientists have formed an international network to compile the census of marine life. Their mission? To identify every living creature in the ocean. A big task? I'd say so, considering that some jellyfish and other squishy creatures of the deep are not individuals but colonies of little critters, some enticing the prey, some stinging the prey, and others propelling them away from the leftovers. One group of marine scientists from the University of Connecticut is aiming aiming at identifying and gene sequencing all the zooplankton in the Antarctic, sorry, in the Atlantic. These drifters are thought to be crucial part of the marine food chain. They eat algae and other plants, called phytoplanktons. They eat one another, and on hungry days can even manage to squeeze in a small fish. But there's no census forms for these guys. No, the scientists collect their gooey mess from as low as 5,000 metres. They're brought up to the surface, given a wee wash in cold water. It has to be cold to keep them alive. The census collecting shouldn't really kill the population they're trying to sample. That would not only be an unfriendly act, but would break down the proteins and DNA, which would defeat the purpose. These biologists are hoping to work out the gene sequence of the 6,800 known species of zooplankton. Cave artists have captured the amazement and imagination of many. It's impressive to think that so long ago, say 30,000 years ago, give or take, Someone was standing in the same spot as you, drawing pictures of a completely different world around them, one of bisons, mammoths, hunters, and people relaxing together in unusual positions. Thus far, we thought that the drawings were cast as part of a hunting or fertility rites, supervised by shamans. But a new theory has arisen, put forward by R. Dale Guthrie, a paleontologist emeritus. Guthrie looked at 200 handprints from Spanish and French caves and measured their size and their shape. He compared them with 700 modern children, teenagers and adults. From their hands, Guthrie theorised that the Paleolithic handprints in the caves were largely those of pubescent teenagers. Relating the characteristics of this demographic to the paintings of hunting, which depict animals oozing with blood, 
and fertility scenes of voluptuous females, Guthrie surmised that the main purpose of the drawings might not be a result of religious impulse, but rather a reflection of pubescent desires. Have you ever wondered whether all the people of the world are connected in some weird, spooky, action-at-a-distance kind of way? Well, apparently the good folks at Princeton University have been, and they're going at great lengths to prove it. Yes, it's interesting that uh, Marion's News brought up uh, communal living jellyfish and all these types of things, because the good people at Princeton do in fact think that humans may be communal livers. Like, we all know that we actually like live together. We live in groups, cities, towns, countries, families. But they believe, or some of them do, that there may be an actual connection between us at certain times, in certain events that may happen throughout the year. Now, what's brought them to think this is what they call the Global Consciousness Project. Now, the idea of the Global Consciousness Project is that people's thoughts, or not necessarily their thoughts, they don't even know what they are actually, is that people are interacting with random number generators somehow. So what the, these people at Princeton have formed a network of random number generators all throughout the world, many different countries. I believe there's a hundred or so of these things around the place, generating millions and millions and millions of random numbers. Usually uh, they're either a one or a zero. And what's happening is that through some events like global events like for example September 9-11, Princess Diana's funeral, massive events like that that seem to affect the world they're getting interesting results now the, the types of results that they're getting are massive standard deviations from what they're expecting now the, the, basically they're, they're using uh, number generators to either a 1 or a 0 instead of, it's basically just like flipping a coin but they obviously they're using that random number generator because they need millions and millions and millions of results so that they can be averaged out, so that there's less chance for error, like a local error. Original idea came from back in the 60s. There was a, a group of scientists that they wanted to see whether people could influence the outcome of rolls of the dice. And so what they had, uh, a large group of people roll dice until they got to a, a 2 million dice rolls. And they told the people, I want you to roll a 6. And so the people were rolling their dice, rolling their dice, and it turned out that there was a standard deviation from what you'd expect of 1% in favour of a 6. And so this is what has brought them to say, OK, well, instead of rolling a dice, we'll just use flipping a coin. And so they use random number generators. So they get a statistically significant result. That's that's what's happening. So when there's these massive... I'm in 100. That's right. But what's happening, they're getting these massive results when there's these big world events, and big giant spikes. And are the results before the event or at the exact moment of the event? Well, they're happening around the time of the event. Okay. And they're sort of spread out because it's not as because they're not be like big sudden events. Yeah, like, so you can't use it as a predictor for what's going. No, happen. it's definitely not a predictor. It's just mm -hmm. you could almost use it as an indicator. Okay. Of that, that something big may be happening. What are the sort of events? Is oh. it just political or? Well, it could. They, that's the thing that they don't know. 
And that's the interesting thing behind it. Obviously, the, the, the other argument could be is that you could look at it as if it was astrology in the paper and says you're going to meet someone you haven't met for a long time and then you meet someone you didn't meet till, till a couple of weeks ago and you go, oh, that's who it must look have, back and that's sort who of it must have been. So it's sort of like looking at clouds and seeing patterns because you want to yes, see and it's that's what your brain the, naturally does. That's the other side of this, yes. They do have a lot of data for New Year's Eves. They get massive spikes on New Year's Eves. Spikes of ones or zero? Well, yes, yeah, they get ones for whatever reason. So, like, what does a one mean? Does it mean you should bet on black? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it can't be used to determine what's going to come up in roulette or, or two or up red, or anything. One or zero. Yes, well, that's right. It's the same sort of thing. Of Do you get? Can you get localized? Well, there's, there's this guy Rob Seawood who's actually done his thesis on this, and you can see his actual his thesis presentation. If you go to robseawood.com. Can you get his grant application anywhere? No, you can't get his grant application. But what he's done, he's made one of these himself, and he's made it really nice, so you can hang it on your wall. It's all independent. The Princeton Project are all network random number generators that send their data through the internet. <laughs> so there's argument there that that's possible that evidence can be tampered with. But this is just one that sits on the wall, and it's constantly generating numbers and what he's done is if he gets a standard deviation of more than I think it's more than two and a half he's got a thing that says if the standard deviation is more than two and a half it sets off lights and stuff and so you can (laughs) I would have thought if there's if we're all interconnected through some non non non-known way then why do you need to connect the random number generators in a network or only just for the for the purposes of data collection. Right. So they each collect their own data and then they send it through to the to be processed at Princeton. So what they're moving to is having a random data generated disco light show or something. Well, funny you should say that. If Death you go parties. to the at if you go to the Princeton website which is nwosphere.princeton.edu, they've got this really cool graphic on their website that they say is is a real time representation of this data. It's represented by a uh, by a sphere that changes color, and so when the sphere is green, it's supposedly all is well, and there's no major events happening. But when it starts to go yellow and red, well then you got to start looking and say, okay, what's what's happening? But these random number generators are formed by this thing. It's not connected to people. Is it connected? No, it's not physically connected to people. The random so maybe, number- maybe when there's a statistically different event, then maybe that's a result of something happening in these mechanical worlds, not the people world? No, the, the, the random numbers are generated through quantum tunneling, particular electronic components like transistors or diodes to produce random white noise via quantum tunneling. So that's how they get their side source. So this white- is through a tunnel diode? basically. So it's a little electronic component that generates... That's right. So supposedly it's totally random. It's not generated by some sort of a formula or anything like that, which can be predicted when you know the formula. It's supposedly white noise produced by quantum tunneling and the variances in voltage and things like that that are leaking out of these diodes and transistors. So maybe world events are influencing this equipment. So somehow these guys at Princeton are theorising that moods are somehow affecting these random number generators. But hold on. Can we go back? They're building on the study of people trying to influence dice with their mind. Yes. Right? And they've replaced the dice with a little electronic gadget just in case the dice are mechanically influenced from 
the hand or the table or Possibly, yeah. something. If people can, I mean, obviously gamblers believe they can influence it with their mind and mm. casinos are betting that they can't and the casinos yes. always win. Yes, that's right. So I'm still sceptical that there's anything real here at all. Well, I especially like Rob, Rob Seale, the guy who's made his own that you can hang on the wall. It's a very interesting talking piece. You can have it in your living room at a dinner party and then the, the lights go off. And <laughs> Does he sell them? No, he doesn't sell them, but if you go to his, uh, not his website, if you go to popularscience.com, you can get the schematics to make your own. And so when it goes off, you can theorize. Or you could just roll dice. Or you could just roll dice. Did your pen levitate during the show? Did your stopwatches restart? Can you control the dice? Email us at diffusion at 2scr.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network.
That was A Santa Barbara by Celia Cruz. Hi, Dr Carl here with an important message. National Science Week is here now. It's all around you. There's heaps to jumpstart your grey matter. There's a national memory test, brain waves with a surfing scientist, science at the pub, at the zoo, at the movies, in your school and down the street. Plus, sleek geeks and some cool scientists from overseas. It's on telly, online, on the radio. Yes, science is everywhere. To find out more, go to scienceweek.info.au. Thanks, Dr. Carl. Yes, that's right, National Science Week is all around you this week. One of the visiting international guests touring the country is the British particle physicist, Dr. Brian Cox. Diffusion's own Tilly Berlin caught up with the science-communicating machine that is Dr. Brian Cox to chat about all the exciting things happening at the world's largest particle physics laboratory, CERN. Well, well, CERN um, is a a lab that's been there for 51 years now. Um, But the the, the excitement is we're building a new machine there called the LHC, which is 27 kilometres in circumference, if you can imagine that. And it sits about 100 metres below Geneva on the Swiss-French border. So it's it's a huge machine, the biggest machine that's ever been built for scientific research. And the idea is to create the conditions that were present as far back towards the start of the universe as as is possible. So right back to the Big Bang. And in fact, this machine, the LHC, can recreate the conditions that were there a billionth of a second or less after the Big Bang. So it's really like going back in time, putting a a, a camera around the early universe, really, and looking and seeing what it's like. Right, so you run two particles at each other around 27 kilometres and then see what happens when you hit them into each other. Yeah, you smash them together. They're protons, actually, which the more scientific-minded people will know are a constituent of the nucleus. So we're made of protons, and and what we're using them really is just is just projectiles. We don't really care what's in the proton in this sense. What what we care about is when you collide them together, you get a huge amount of energy in a very small space, and that's what we care about. Is essentially you make a huge temperature, and and that temperature is the temperature that the universe was a billionth of a second after it began. So all the weird stuff that went on just after the Big Bang that we want to know about will happen in a tiny space for a tiny amount of time and then you can just, because it's in a lab you can watch it really carefully what happens is you just turn the thing on and you, you, you make these little moments every uh, 22 nanoseconds is the, is the, the term so it's 22,000 millionths of a second so every two, tw- every 22,000 millionths of a second one of these little collisions occurs and you just keep taking pictures and, and the, the, the reason you do that is because the interesting processes are very rare so, so by interesting, I would mean, for example, making new particles. I should say, I mean, the, these beams of protons that they'll fit inside the, uh, the, the the zero on on a on a ten cent coin. So, if you look at a ten cent coin, they're tiny little beams, but they carry as much energy as an aircraft carrier going at thirty miles an hour, right? <laughs> Which is incredible. And and so, basically, it's really hard to make these proton beams collide together. So, and it breaks a lot. And you can imagine if you've got this beam that's got the energy of an aircraft carrier and you miss a little bit and shoot it up into some <laughs> magnet or other, it'll make a hole or in it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, <laughs> it's, it's completely closed off when it's running for that reason, right? It is actually really dangerous. And uh, n- not dangerous in the sense you'll do anything bad to Geneva, but dangerous in the sense that if you put your head in the way, it'll make a hole in it, <laughs> right? So, it, so all of the people that are scared that it might be the end of the world or anything when you turn it on that's all it won't be the end of the world (laughs) i mean the reason actually we know is that there are things called cosmic rays which is a lot of radiation in space and and these things are hitting the earth all the time and they have more energy a lot more energy than than we're going to get at the lhc so we've got kind of a natural experiment and you can say well the earth still exists 
and it's been around for five billion years and we know it's been hit by this many cosmic rays so therefore we, we're all right and that, that's actually what you have to do because it is true that we can look at new physics here and we could look at weird stuff mm. but no weird stuff has happened up in space so nothing weird will happen down here that's mm. that's the <laughs> reassuring message well, what else is on your agenda in the future what do you want to do after you switch the particle <laughs> accelerator on well then that's when it all starts actually because what, what I really do is I analyse data so I'm not inv as involved in building as I am in actually looking at what, what's happened and, and that's going to be a, a process that takes many years because it's really difficult I mean of these you know, collision, a collision every 22,000 millionths of a second mm -hmm. and, and oh, only it, well uh, it's, I think the number is 10,000 Encyclopedia Britannicas per second Right, flowing out of this thing, and you've got to sift through. A needle in a haystack doesn't get it at no. all. It's a needle in a in a planet-sized haystack, and and maybe we're looking for the Higgs boson, for example. We might make uh, ten of them that we could see in in a year. Mm. Right. So so really, you've got yeah, to. Yeah. And you imagine how many um, collisions there've been. You've got to sift through that. Mm. So I'm going to be doing that. What actually got you interested in science to begin with? I, it's, it's a good question. I've always been interested in it from the as far back as I can remember. One of the big motivating things was a, a. Do you remember Carl Sagan? There was a TV series called Cosmos, and I remember vividly watching that. And I, I suppose I was about twelve or something. Mm. And that that was one of the things that not only got me into science, but actually when I got into science, made me want to talk about it to people because because I certainly grew up with Carl uh, with Sagan as one of my heroes so that, that linked in as well When did you start becoming a scientific communicator uh, and was it something that you planned to do? No, I fell into it it was, um, I think, as a result of being in bands actually basically BBC Radio 4 um, asked me to do something just after I started doing a PhD so it was right at the start of my career and I think their logic was well he's been on top of the pops which is the UK uh, chart music show so I'd stood there behind a keyboard dancing around and miming to a song and therefore I could present a science programme on BBC Radio 4 which is I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know why that <laughs> happened but I did it and it, and it was kind of alright and I went on to do a few more things for the radio and it, and so, and it came on from that really That's I hadn't thought about it before then now, in the world today, there seems to be many more science communicators, not that we're necessarily all getting all the stories out there, but do you find that being sort of the science communicator celebrity has changed the way that people look at you within your field? It's, it's a good question, that. I think it depends what you do, um, because there's always pressure. I mean, certainly uh, on me, because I do bits of TV and quite a bit of TV in the UK, and you get asked to do more and more TV, and some of it's kind of you know, with dubious relevance as far as science communication and certainly the kind of science that I do. And so if you do that, then some eyebrows get raised. But I think it's now realised that, certainly from the funding agencies, that, that the taxpayers have a right to know what the tax money is going on. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they want to know, you know, so they have a right and a desire to know what's going on in their name and... and by people like me, and they, they pay my wages at the end of the day. So I, th I think I think that it, it's accepted. But it, you, you've got to, there's a line that you can sometimes cross. I think, and you know, there are certain we call them in Britain media tarts. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and and if you become one of those and do too much media and not enough research, then I think you become useless to both fields. In fact, so, yeah. so in um, in Australia and worldwide as well, uh, there's been a downturn in the number of students that are taking science at high school and therefore university. Um, do you have any idea about why this is happening and how we can stop it? Um, it's a tricky one, actually, because one way it's 
people try and address it in the UK is to, is to make it a bit easier because the perception is that it's too hard, particularly yeah. physics because of the maths. And that, that causes problems. I mean, at universities then we have problems and we've gone to four-year degrees actually in the UK mm-hmm. uh, in order to get the maths back up to standard again because uh, 18-year-olds can't do the sums they used to be able to. It sounds <laughs> like my dad now and <laughs> my granddad, but it's, it's actually true. But I, and I think the, 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 the idea behind it was fair enough that you know, if you make it a bit easier, then you can get the big ideas across and excite people and then they might go on to do physics or, or maths properly. So I, I don't know the answer other than infusing people about the stuff that we do and showing them that it's interesting. It's not just about batteries and wires and all the kind of stuff that I remember from school, but it's about how the universe began and how old the universe is and what the universe is made of and black holes and all this kind of stuff. And that's truly what you do when when you get to a degree level. So, you know, maybe that's an answer to, to get more science on TV, more science on the radio and make people excited. Indeed, Brian, all of us here at Diffusion completely agree with you. We need to get people excited about science. If you want to see the Dr. Brian Cox speaking live, check out the National Science Week website, scienceweek.info.au. You're listening to Tonight by Miles Davis. That's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, wild, passionate praise, or you can influence the dice, then email us at diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Or check out our podcast feed at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. Contributing to the program were Vanessa Gardos, Marion Carruthers, Matt Clark, and Tilly Boleyn. Diffusion's been produced and panelled by Matt in the studios of 2SCR Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion 2.0.